interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. There are a number of things in what uh, Dr. Waldersworth talked about that uh, that resonated. Um, and uh, I guess it's part of a little bit of introduction. Um, uh, academically, uh, I'm going to talk about my existence from January to April of every year when uh, it's best described that my life is I am a, uh, a bottom feeder uh, extraordinaire. And the reason is because uh, over those four months, I teach at three different institutions, and at each of those institutions, I teach as an adjunct, which, um, as many of you are aware, are, I think visiting scholars are a little bit lower on the scale, but adjuncts are just slightly higher than that. And then to add to that, to the bottom feeding phenomena, I teach within the program in the environment at the University of Michigan. And uh, I got my job teaching there because they went through a bit of a crisis. They uh, had moved the program from the School of Natural Resources and Environment into the general uh, LSA, Literature, Science, and Arts Division of the university. And horror of horrors, they had to add humanities. Uh, the uh, School of Natural Resources at the University of Michigan was begun in 1903. It was one of the first, uh, along with Cornell and Yale, of the natural resource schools. And uh, since they were one of the Johnny-come-latelys in the sciences, uh, they had a bit of catching up to do in terms of prestige. And so the way it developed is that the way you got uh, credence is that you did hard science and you did uh, policy, public policy. And the more you could portray yourself as a hard science person, the more um, validity you would have. On the other hand, if you did things like environmental psychology or things like that, it was a little less marginal. But even though there was this impulse to establish credentials, um, the other hard sciences very much looked down on environmental studies. And so there is this uh, complex within uh, the uh, School of Natural Resources and Environment um, and the program in the environment that we don't really quite measure up. And so then, you, so I'm in a department that considers itself a little bit inferior and is trying to keep up. And then I teach the humanities, and there are uh, about half the faculty have a little trouble acknowledging my existence. Uh, I am a, a fact of which they are embarrassed. And then uh, you also have to add, I, I believe that right now I am the only professor at the University of Michigan whose degree is in theology. Uh, I did have a companion who had a degree in theology from Notre Dame who taught business ethics over in the business school. He left a year ago, and to my knowledge, there's not another one. There may be, but I haven't come across that person. And um, when I started teaching four years ago at the University of Michigan, uh, it struck me how different it was teaching there uh, from what it was at um, the El Sabo Institute, which uh, I make, uh, I teach three weeks at El Sabo in the middle of January. I go to northern Michigan in the middle of winter, and students fly in from around the country. They all come from Christian colleges, and for three weeks, they're all interested in environmental topics. They're all eager. They all love to be away from the cities where they've been, and it is like 
dying and going to heaven for three weeks. And everybody is intensely engaged, and it's a small class. And I do some teaching at Calvin College, and there you have a range of people, uh, but mainly from evangelical backgrounds, and it's a little bit more mixed. But then you get to a place like the University of Michigan, and it's baffling. I mean, the uh, the scene, to, to figure out what's going on is... Um, it can get pretty baffling. And uh, what I found helpful about what uh, what Nick talked about earlier was um, was the matter of finding a voice and um, understanding uh, what one is doing. And that uh, the primary thing isn't that I'm about is not integrating faith and learning. It's not trying to take these things that are incompatible. But it is, in one sense, uh, trying to be authentically human and Christian in this setting. And um, a large part of it, I've come to the conclusion, is not being embarrassed about it or feeling like one has to apologize. And um, uh, that's not always easy because there is all sorts of baggage that comes along with it. Um, I teach in the undergraduate program. It's astounding to me that the graduate program in uh, environment and natural resources at University of Michigan has never had an ethics course taught. Um, it's just deemed to be uh, beneath um, beneath their uh, their time and attention. And um, one of the things that uh, I found is that there are, you know, about a third of my fellow faculties, uh, fellow faculty members don't know quite what to do with me or what sort of weird thing I might say. And so the first year I was very conscious of uh, not saying anything weird and uh, making sure that if I said something that had any kind of religious connotations that I'd say enough that they could get the context and begin to breathe a little easier, and uh, I know there were some faculty or what is in this guy's syllabus and uh, what's going on, and after all, I realized, you know, most of this is their problem, and uh, what you need to do is teach the course and realize that a number of your students have deep religious inclinations, some have none at all, but uh, the subject matter you teach um, necessarily involves big worldview questions and questions of value, and uh, there's all kinds of opportunities to tap into it, not in a proselytizing kind of way, but uh, to give people permission to explore uh, those deep things of meaning. And um, I guess I consider myself fortunate with the subject matter I teach. You can't teach John Muir without teaching a little bit about his Scottish Presbyterian upbringing and his Disciples of Christ father and um, some of the complex of um, of, of uh, theology and uh, religious practice involved in Then you have the natural contrast between him and, say, Gifford Pinchot, who was equally religious but came out of um, mainline Protestant uh, post-millennial um, you know, progressivist vision and um, but the only way you're going to know these people and why they said what they did is to enter into their religious vision. And it needn't, most figures are from the Christian tradition here in, uh, uh, when you're studying environmental ethics, but uh, Arne Ness will introduce some, uh, some Eastern philosophy and, um, 
there's a variety of uh, of possibilities in which students can encounter and the, the the encouragement there is develop your voice. You know, think about this. And why are you interested in studying this? Some of them are there just to get the three credits in the humanities that they have to do to graduate. Others are there searching and wanting to articulate a vision and give them permission to do that. And that is one of the biggest things in a, in a, a state university uh, setting, just the giving permission. One of the things I have always done, uh, I did this when I started teaching at the Osawa Institute, and it fits very well there. But I decided when I taught it at uh, University of Michigan to do this as well, I require my class, in addition to reading all the philosophy articles, they had to read Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And, uh, you know, the first class period or two, there's always the question, what was she smoking when she wrote this book? And... Um, She, uh, you know, she's a mystic, most deeply immersed in the Christian tradition, but familiar with others. And um, there's various points at which, you know, she's trying to engage the natural world and figure out what it means. And one of the key things is always at the end of the semester, it's in the last chapter she has, it's a, it's a little aside where she says, um, she's describing a fall scene and she's standing in woods and leaves are falling and the smell, it's just a, a sensory overload of fall. And in the middle of this paragraph, she breaks off and there's this little uh, hyphenated uh, uh, clause. It says, ah, this world, um, ah, this world, who can account for a moment of it? And I always ask the students, why did, why did she put that in there? And, um, you know, they're trying to figure out some rationale for it. And the simple fact of the matter is, this is a woman who allowed herself, after 30 years of life on this globe, she allowed herself to fall in love with the natural world. And to give them permission to follow up the deep attachments that they have. I find that in environmental studies, many people are going into it because they sense this attachment to something outside themselves. And to give permission for them to do that and say, you know, you can do all the analysis you want of it, but there's really another very good thing that you can be doing, and that is allowing yourself to form attachments and uh, that there's something uh, good about this and integral to it. And um, so what I really liked was this, uh, the idea of, of finding one's voice and, um, and then it, it's, it's a part of developing one's vision for life that you invite students and indirectly other faculty members in uh, into the conversation of how do we articulate these things. All right, those are my comments.